intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey, y'all. Happy New Year. We are so excited to record our first episode of 2024, and we thought it was only appropriate to start the year with the story that started this podcast. I'm Heather, and I'm here with my dear friend, Alana, my co-host, also a real estate agent in our hometown of Dallas, and our mutual friend, Melanie, our producer, who, if you have not met Mel yet, her ability to research something to the end of the internet is second to none. So together we dreamed up this little idea for a podcast over margaritas over like over a year ago now. Yeah, yeah, that's wild to think about. And that's right. And those of you new to the podcast who may not be familiar with our story, the three of us became friends as many moms do through our kids. And maybe through a shared love of margaritas. Well, we do live in Texas. Yeah. But Heather, really this all started when you and I met up for happy hour to chat about real estate and one thing led to another. And you were telling me about this idea you had for a podcast covering true crime and the real estate surrounding those true crimes. And I was in immediately. Yeah. I mean, it may have been the margaritas talking, probably so, but I am so glad you said yes. You know, by the time I got home that night, we had a name for the podcast and my sweet husband had purchased the domain crimeestate.com. So we were set and ready to go. Y'all move fast. But not a day later, we saw Melanie, we were telling her about the idea and pretty much immediately asked her and her fabulous brain to come on board and help us with this new venture. Yeah, I mean, not to make it sound like all we do is meet up for a happy hour because our lives are a lot less glamorous than that. Um, Think orthodontist appointments, after school rehearsals. I mean, none of our kids drive yet, so a lot of full-time drivers here. Um, And of course, all three of us work full-time jobs on top of being moms. But since we had a school event that night and you were all so excited about the podcast, it was contagious. And, you know, a busy person always says yes to something new. You are so right about that. And I am so glad that both of you all said yes without hesitation to my crazy idea. And today we are going to cover the story that started it all, the story of the murder house my husband grew up in in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Right. And that day at the happy hour, when you were telling me the story, I was blown away by the idea that you had been married to your husband for years before you found out that this was even a thing. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I mean, look, at this point, I've been married over half my life. And it is fascinating to me that I can still discover something new about this person that I live with like all the time. Um, So just when I thought I knew it all, he casually mentioned something about, you know, the murder house in Iowa, (laughs) as if I knew exactly what he meant. And I had no idea about this part of his family history. I love how blasé he is about this. I mean, he could have been entertaining folks for years. It could be like that party story um, that he would be telling. But no, to him, it was just something normal. Like, like, did he think he had already told you it in the past? I think it was just a fact is a fact is a fact. Okay. Yeah. It's, very like, it's very much like that. Like yeah, that is so yeah. true. Yeah, there's no gray. Um, and I can't wait to dig into this story. And I know you interviewed your husband's family about their experiences living in the house over the holidays. And we are so excited to be joined today by your sister-in-law, Carrie. Carrie, thanks for also saying yes to this crazy little podcast idea of ours. And we are so excited to hear what you have to share about this property. Oh my gosh, you guys, I'm so excited to be part of this today. I, I really enjoy listening to your show and I've never been on a podcast before. So this is a first for me, but I have to say that you've done such a great job with this project. But what's the most fun for me is listening to Heather and hearing the stories about her family my family, and it just makes me smile. 
I still live in Iowa, so listening to the show somehow just makes me feel closer to them. Anyway, I'm happy to be part of today's show and in particular sharing my perspective of the property that was the catalyst for Crime Estate. We're so excited to have you, Carrie. But before we dig in, should we remind our listeners about some of the new and exciting things you're kicking off in the new year? Sure. And let me jump in here. Um, So, you know, one of our goals for 2024 is engaging more with our listeners. Um, We get lots of texts from our friends and and different comments, but, you know, we want to really kind of dig into your ideas on crime estate stories that we should cover. So we've come up with a couple of new ways to collaborate with you this year. First, of course, um, as they say, leave us a five-star review whenever you listen to your podcast, whenever or wherever, I guess. And then at the end of your review, tell us why you think it would be fun uh, for us to do a live Zoom mini-sode with your podcast club or a group of your closest friends. Uh, we are going to try and do one interactive podcast a quarter. And of course, we'd love for you to join us. So I just did this with an author at our book club and it was so much fun. So I'm excited to do this for the podcast and have an opportunity to meet more of our listeners. You know, I don't know a lot of your all's friends from across the country and they've shared it with their friends. And so, yeah, I'm excited to, to meet people that have been listening and texting us. I'm excited, but also a little nervous because we cut a lot out. Like we say some wild stuff sometimes. I feel like it's on the cutting room floor. <laughs> so, yeah. so we'll have to be on our best Zoom, behavior. Yes. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> For sure. But we'll notify winners on our Instagram page. So please make sure to sign your review with your Insta handle and follow the show. So you know if you are the lucky winner. I love that you say Insta handle. <laughs> I, well, I'm hip. <laughs> you are. Obviously, you're very, very hip. Anyway, that's right. We'll announce the winners quarterly. So make sure you share the podcast with all your friends and have them leave a review as well as to increase your chances of winning. And with all of that said and the housekeeping out of the way, should we just jump right in? Let's do it. All right. Well, this story starts before my husband was born on Halloween night of 1975, just outside of Cedar Falls, Iowa. Now, before we really begin, I should mention that the majority of my research for the story comes from the book Brother's Blood, A Heartland, Cain and Abel by Scott Kowalty, um, recommended to me by Carrie. So thanks, Carrie. I appreciate that. And Kowalty was born and raised. Yeah. And Kowalty was born and raised in Cedar Falls, going to high school with the family at the center of this story. And then he went on to become a professor of literature at the University of Northern Iowa, located in Cedar Falls, making him the perfect person to write the story of what happened that night at the Mark Farm on Union Road. Now, Dorothy and Wayne Mark married in July of 1938, and they went on to have four sons, each four years apart. As boy moms, can you imagine? Like, no, four boys. There's no way. And at the same time, they were also building their family wealth through farming and real estate, accumulating over 1,200 acres of rich Iowa farmland and establishing their family home at 5829 North Union Road in Cedar Falls, Iowa. A large two-story farmhouse built in 1899 and made of wood with a wraparound front porch encompassing almost 6,000 square feet total. beautiful. Yeah. And huge. Mm Mm-hmm. Of the Mark children, Richard, otherwise known as Dick, was the eldest. He grew up and moved away from Iowa, becoming a minister in Toronto. Jerry Mark was the next oldest. He was a high achiever in high school who left Iowa to join the Peace Corps, serving in Brazil, and then later returned to get his law degree from the University of Iowa in 1972. He went on to work for a short time at Legal Aid of Iowa before just deciding that the law was not for him and moving to Berkeley, California. According to Kowalty, Dorothy Mark had a soft spot for her son, Jerry, but the rest of the Mark family didn't approve of Jerry's hippie California lifestyle. Mm -hmm. 
It went against their Midwestern values and their work ethic. And then Tom and Les rounded out the Mark family. And with Tom suffering from mental health issues, Jerry living in California and Dick living in Toronto, the baby of the family, 25-year-old Les Mark, was the obvious choice to take over the family farm and real estate business when Wayne's health started to fail in the early 1970s. I think it's important to point out here that this family had accumulated quite a bit of wealth through farming and real estate. At the time of Wayne Mark's death in 1977, his estate was worth over a million dollars. Wow. So in the spring of 1975, understanding that his health was deteriorating and that the treatments he was undergoing were beginning to take a toll on his ability to get around, Wayne called Jerry in California and asked him to bring his daughters and come for a visit. He wanted to visit with his grandkids while he still felt well enough to enjoy them, and he realized that his illness meant he needed to get some of his affairs in order. Now, Alana, it's possible that this visit started the chain of events that would eventually tear the Mark family apart. Wayne announced that he was turning the family business over to Les and would be giving the house on Union Road to Les and his wife, Georgine, to live in while he and Dorothy moved to a smaller home up the road. Jerry was furious with both of these decisions, feeling that he knew the farming business better than his brother, Les, and that he was being slighted and passed over for his younger brother. The blow-up that occurred as a result of this decision called Jerry to end his trip early, and he flew home without working things out with his dad and brother, going so far to t- as to tell his father that he would, quote, piss on his grave once Ooh, he was dead. Dang. Yeah, that's serious. Yeah. So this was obviously not the family meeting that Wayne wanted, but it seemed that by summer, things had sort of cooled off. Les had agreed to write a letter of recommendation for Jerry so that he could get a job out in California. Also that summer, Les and Georgine and their two kids, Julie and Jeff, had moved into the homestead on Union Road. So Carrie, you lived in the Mark family homestead house on Union Road. And, you know, we always like to describe the house and the town to our listeners. Will you tell us just a little bit about the community and the Mark house? Yeah, of course. Um, I grew up in Cedar Falls and Cedar Falls was not considered a small town, but it's also definitely not a metropolis by any means. The city's connected to yet a larger city, Waterloo, making it feel much bigger than it really is, and it has all the amenities you need. Now, that said, for the most part, everyone still knew everyone since it was a one high school, one hospital town, and very community-centered. I really loved Cedar Falls, and I still do. In fact, when we moved to Des Moines, still here in Iowa, we chose a suburb that to this day still reminds me of Cedar Falls. Now, for the property... The two-story home was about five miles outside of city limits on a two-lane paved county road. The home was set back off the highway with a large front yard that my dad turned into a, a large riding ring for his horses. So you can imagine how big that that front yard yeah. was. Yeah, quote unquote, like piece of land, not exactly yard, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, on the north side of the lot, there was a chicken coop and a, a decent-sized barn. We used it as a garage and a place to store hay for the horses. The lot was lined with trees on two sides of the the property with the home settled in the middle back half of one on the one half acre lot. It had a very long gravel single driveway. And I remember that long driveway, although when I see it today, it's not as long as I remember. Anyway, I recall coming home much later than I should have, probably doing things I shouldn't have. And how that long driveway felt as I made the drive after the lights in my dad's bedroom flipped on one night. 
that night, it was a very long driveway. Oh my gosh. I can only imagine. And here it's gravel, right? So you're trying to be quiet and it's making yes. all this noise yeah. and the light comes on. Yeah. As a teenager, that would be terrifying <laughs> yep. for sure. Yeah. I almost turned around. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the home itself um, is two stories with two sets of stairs leading to the second floor. One was in the back of the house and one in the front. The kitchen was in the back corner with an entrance on the side of the house that led up into the dining kitchen area, or you could go down to the basement. There were two additional entrances, one on the other side of the home, basically directly across from the one leading to the kitchen dining area. This also led to the dining area. And then of course, there in the main entrance, there is the main entrance at the front of the house that leads to the formal living room and there was this huge stone fireplace splitting that room with what we used as more of a family room. It's where we had our TV and we would just kind of hang out. Now, I want to back up to the basement. Uh, I, I have to say, you know, I know you all don't have basements where you live there in Texas. And so the John Bonet episode, actually, it, you would always confuse me when you talk about three stories. Because those of us who have basements, the basement's not considered a story. Oh, oh I okay, see. Good to know. So like, yeah, so there's the, yeah. So the basement is the basement. The main level is your first floor. Second level above the main level is your second level, second story. And then so on. I have to tell you, it, totally. Mm -hmm. And as somebody with a teenage boy now, I wish we had a basement yes. so badly. I mean, we love hanging out in your basement when we come to visit. So, yeah, it's it's something we miss out yeah. on here in Texas for sure. Yeah, basements are great because they're also a lot more quiet. So, yeah, you can send those teenage kids down there and, and you just don't hear you hear them, but not quite as loudly as you would otherwise. But anyway, yeah. just food for thought when you talk about basements. <laughs> Noted. Appreciate that. And were there any bedrooms on the first level? Or just all yeah, the so, um, yeah, so there were four bedrooms upstairs. For some reason, I feel like there were more. You know, you talked about it being 6,000 square foot, but there really were only four bedrooms up there. Three of them on one side of the house, and then just the one, which was the master, on the other side of the house. So it was kind of a long hallway. You know, you get to the top of the stairs at either set, and it was just a long hallway connecting those two stairways. One side of the house was the master bedroom. Right at the top of the front stairwell, there were two bedrooms. And so you can imagine they were all pretty large because this this was the whole second level. And it, you know, it probably yeah, I mean, roughly probably 3,000 3, square feet. feet. Yeah. Yeah, because the basement was not finished. So, you know, they couldn't count that as square footage, so to speak. Um, so there was two at the front uh, stairwell. And then there was a bathroom and then another bedroom towards the back of the house off the back side of the stairs. And then, like I said, the main uh, master bedroom with a bathroom on the one side. Well, thank you for that. I think that helps us get a good picture mm -hmm. of the house. Definitely. I think we actually have a floor plan that we'll put up online too, because I think anytime you're talking about like when somebody comes into a home, as you're about to hear are mm -hmm. about to tell you on this mm -hmm. crime. It's interesting to see like what, what the entrances yeah. and egresses mm -hmm. were and how they could have gotten in and gotten out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of those entrances um, was that you would come through a covered patio area. And so there was a roof 
And from the second story, I, I recall this because I might actually have a scar on my knee from crawling out a window <laughs> that you could land on the roof of that patio. You sound fun. <laughs> I know. I wish I, I didn't know Carrie till after she had kiddos. I mean, teenage Carrie right. could have been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is when I was, I was only 16, but I was dating my current husband. So Aww, sweet. Such an Iowa love story. Uh, it it does sound like there were a lot of entrances, entrances and exits to the house. Yeah, there were three main, you know, actual entrances mm-hmm. and then, of course, several windows. Well, and if you think about it, this house was built in 1899. So we're not there, there's no central air conditioning. There's no like you would have had doors open for breezes and you especially know, that kind in of the thing. 70s. Yeah. 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 And and this was I got to imagine, you know, it's outside of town. And you're talking about this long driveway. It feels like you're not going to the house or going all the way to the house unless you're meaning to go to the house. Mm -hmm. You're not stumbling Mm -hmm. upon it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And so this is the Mark family homestead that Wayne and Dorothy ended up passing on to their son, Les, and his family. So that Halloween evening, Les came home in time for an early supper. And instead of taking their two young kids trick-or-treating, they decided to go for a short visit to their friend's house and then returned home to get the kids into bed and for Les to continue working on the day's harvest. October was one of the busiest times of year on the Mark farm. Dorothy and Wayne stopped by around 10 to wish the kids a happy Halloween, but didn't stay long. Shortly after the kids were in bed, Les's uncle Victor showed up to help Les haul a few more truckloads of corn from the corn dryer. The two didn't finish with the evening farming chores until almost 1 a.m. Life of a farmer. Yeah, it's it's, it's hard work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I was doing the research on this, it reminds me a lot of my family farm in Kentucky. You know, you have the center or main house that everyone's just sort of seems to revolve around Mm -hmm. and people stop in at all hours of the day and night. And, you know, typically there's food for any of the family or friends who, who are working on the farm or helping out with the harvest and might be hungry. However, in this case, and unfortunately for the Mark family, little did Les and Georgie know that this would be their last day on the farm and they would not live to see the sunrise on November 1st. So sometime after 1 a.m. and before the main breaker was pulled at 3.05 a.m., stopping the electric clock in the Mark's bedroom, someone executed the entire Mark family, Les, Georgine, Julie, and Jeff. That took a terrible turn. Yes. Dang. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize when, we, when we, you first started talking about the story that Les and Georgine were both only 25 years mm. old. And I don't know, I guess I was just in picturing them being older, they're inheriting all this work. But no, I mean, they were a young couple that had been married since they were 20 years old. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, and actually, actually, um, I, I have kind of a an ironic story about Les. Les went to school, the high school in Cedar Falls, with my mother. Oh. Uh, so they graduated uh, within a year of each other. And my mother actually went to prom with him. I'm sorry. <laughs> Are you blown away? Did I forget to tell you that? You part, know. Okay. I was like looking at Heather going, did you know this? <laughs> that came up over Thanksgiving, right? And, and yeah. Les, by the way, is yeah. short for Leslie. Yes. Uh, what, what did she say? Was he a nice guy? Yes. Yeah, she would. This small talks town. about being a small yeah. town, small mm-hmm. world. So, okay. So as we discussed earlier, harvest is a busy time on the farm. And as such, one of the regular farm workers, Clark Renner, arrived around 7 a.m. the next day. 
ready to meet Les and, you know, get started on the day's work. And he was surprised that Les wasn't like already up and around and outside waiting on him and even more surprised that the corn dryer, which really should have run through the night to dry the corn during this busy season, was quiet and off. So he knocked on the door and he called out to Les and Georgine. And as he looked through the door, he could see that a fern had been thrown through a window, causing dirt to be scattered all over the floor. But deciding that it was not his place to walk into their home without permission, Renner left to get Les's parents, Wayne and Dorothy, who at this point were just living up the road. So Dorothy and Wayne drove back to the house on Union Road. You know, that's the same one they had lived in for years. And they were also surprised to see that Les and Georgine and the kids weren't awake yet. So by this point in the story, walking was really hard for Wayne. So he stays in the car while Dorothy and Clark Renner enter through the kitchen door where they saw more evidence of vandalism. In particular, the family's heirloom grandfather clock had been smashed. It's time stopping at 3.05 a.m. Dorothy was the first to open the door to her son's bedroom, which we'll remember Carrie told us was located upstairs. And when she opened the door, she noticed that there was a pool of blood by the door. When she proceeded to push it open, she realized that both Les and Georgine had been shot. And so instead of pushing further into the room, she and Renner went in search of the children, hoping and praying that they had slept through the crime that occurred. They first found five-year-old Julie and then 18-month-old Jeff, both dead in their beds, the mattresses soaked with blood. Now, ever the Midwestern farmer's wife, Dorothy jumped into action, first going into the basement to turn the breaker back on, bringing power back to the house, and then calling the sheriff, the minister, and Georgine's parents. Within an hour, investigators had arrived at the house on Union Road, expecting to find evidence of a murder-suicide. But when no gun was discovered, they realized that they were dealing with a mass murder, reminiscent of what had happened just a few years prior to the Clutter family in Kansas. Yeah, we covered the Clutter family murders in episode 16. Yeah, I think that's right. Episode 16. And I don't think they ever figured out who did it. There Weren't there like several theories? No, the Clutters, they did know. It was very, they were executed for the, for the crimes. But you might be thinking of Velisca. That's what I'm thinking yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah, they never found that. So back in Cedar Falls, investigators were working quickly to determine who had committed this horrible crime. Tom Ruxlow, who was an agent with the Bureau of Criminal Investigation and was assigned to this case, said, quote, We agreed that someone had murdered an entire family, as if to saw off one limb from the Mark family tree. The suspect was obviously filled with personal rage, and this was simply not a robbery gone wrong as it was staged to appear, end quote. The investigators literally stumbled over the first piece of evidence. On the way to check out the phone lines, one of the investigators stepped in a hole in the ground and fell. And at his feet were bullet casings, which presumably had fallen from the perpetrator's pockets when he or she stepped in the same hole and fell just as the investigator had done. That's wild. Isn't that crazy? They found two live 38 caliber casings. Now, the second interesting piece of evidence they found was the cut phone lines. Remember, Dorothy Mark called the police from the Mark family home that morning, so they knew that the lines to the house were still intact. But when they investigated the phone junction box, they found that the lines to the neighbor's house had been cut. Dorothy informed the police that until very recently, those were their phone lines where it was connected, but they had just recently been relocated to a different box, Mm. probably like when Les and Georgine did the move and, you know, they were changing stuff over. Mm -hmm. All of that got moved, too. 
So putting together that the intruder cut the power to the house, knew where the main breaker was in the basement in order to cut the power, and then moved around the house freely in the dark, plus the fact that the intruder thought he was cutting the phone lines to the house, led police to believe that whoever killed the Mark family was familiar with the home on Union Road. And Carrie brought up earlier um, the John Bonet house, and I remember thinking that there's similarities that there were some things that were so specific about locations uh, in the house that the mm-hmm. the perpetrator had to be somebody who knew. Mm-hmm. Like this wasn't as wild as maybe as in the clutter house, um, where it wasn't necessarily that the person had been in their house before. Mm-hmm. This was definitely somebody who knew the house well, which then leads the investigators mm-hmm. to the, you know the p- possible perpetrators. Mm-hmm. So rounding out the immediate evidence discovered on day one of the investigation were cigarette butts that had been tossed away in and around the Mark homestead. Now, neither Les nor Georgine smoked, so investigators assumed the butts were left by the perpetrator. The investigators' next step was to interview the family, which totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so they started with Tom, the only Mark brother living in Iowa at the time, and also the one who was suffering from mental health issues. So police went to downtown Waterloo, where Tom was said to hang out in bars and at strip clubs in order to bring the brother in for questioning. They wanted to know if the family knew if Les and Georgine had any enemies, and they also wanted to establish alibis for everyone associated with or close to the family. So Coelty describes Tom as, quote, a not a ne'er-do-well. He was more of a never-well, having been diagnosed at first as an alcoholic, then a schizophrenic, a debilitated man. And his mother, Dorothy, often explained to friends that his thoughts would get ahead of his mind, meaning that, you know, he was often just sort of incoherent and not only had trouble keeping a train of thought, but also had trouble like just keeping up with Mm. his personal items. So when the police found Tom in Waterloo the next day, they took him in for questioning. And, you know, he did not have a solid alibi for where he was on Halloween night. He said, you know, he'd slept on and off during the day. He'd eaten a hamburger at a local bar and then spent some time at a strip club before just heading back to bed. And while this seems like it could be somewhat incriminating, it became apparent to the police that Tom not only didn't understand what had happened to his brother, but he also didn't know that Les and his family had even moved into the house on Union Road. Wow. So it sounds like he really just didn't have the mental capacity to carry out a crime like this. Yeah, that's exactly what the police thought as well, Alana. And so, you know, their next step was to turn their attention to the next Mark brother on their list, um, Dick, the minister in Toronto. Dick had actually married Les and Georgine a few years prior, and family and friends expected that he would be the one to perform the service at the burial as well. So the investigators said, let's just wait, you know, until he arrives in Cedar Falls, and then we can talk to him in person. So that left Jerry in California for the police to question. But unfortunately, they were not able to reach him as he had gone on a several-day-long motorcycle ride to clear his head and get his relationship with his current living girlfriend, Mimi, back on track. When he called home to check in with Mimi on Sunday afternoon, she gave him the horrible news. And given his current location on the road, Mimi's parents' home in Nevada was actually closer for Jerry than his home own home out in Berkeley. So the two agreed to meet at her parents' house to discuss how to get back to Iowa for the funerals. However, little did Jerry know that Mimi's father had made a call to the local police that same day and mentioned that his daughter might have information about the Mark murders. What? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So we, okay. So we just met Mimi in the story. Who is she and how would she have information on the murders? Okay. So that's a good question. So let me give you just a little bit of background. Mimi was at one time married to Jerry's friend, Alga. 
And when she decided to leave Alga, she moved in with Jerry, you know, just believing that her marriage was over and had been for a long time. But not surprisingly, like Alga didn't take this very well. Um, He was pretty bitter and he wasn't like super responsive or helpful about getting Mimi's possessions back to her. Yeah, that that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I'd be it. I'm pretty mad too. Yeah. And so Jerry and Mimi actually devise a plan to steal an old camping trailer that Mimi and Olga own together and believing that they could like sell the contents and get some money to purchase new things for Mimi or that, you know, maybe they could use the items they found in the trailer to trade for some of Mimi's things. Um, so despite Jerry's training as a lawyer and his stint in the Peace Corps, he just really wasn't very good at keeping a job. And the two had to live very frugally, often relying on Jerry's dad for the money they needed to get by. In fact, Wayne Mark sent Jerry a check for $1,500 toward the beginning of October as a loan toward the purchase of a new car. In truth, he purchased a used Honda 450 motorcycle, the same one he would use for that motorcycle ride to find himself later in the month. Okay, but circling back to the call Mimi's dad made to the local police. Mimi had mentioned to her dad that a gun the two had found in this absconded camping trailer was missing. She had arrived home that the day that Jerry left on his motorcycle trip to find that their storage shed had been broken into and that the gun was gone. When the local police reported this to the police in Waterloo, Iowa, investigators asked them to question Jerry as soon as possible. And so that's how Jerry Mark first tells the story of his motorcycle quest to find himself to the police not in Iowa, but in, in Mimi's parents' living room in Nevada. Interesting. Yeah. So the funeral for Les, Georgine, Julie, and Jeff was held only two days later once all family members arrived in Cedar Falls. And by the following day, Wednesday, only five days after the Mark family was murdered, police had focused their investigation on Jerry Mark. Over 20 investigators took a recent photo of Jerry and showed it to gas station attendants at restaurants and restaurants along Interstate I-80, a road which essentially runs all the way from Jerry's home state of California to the center of Iowa. And once they found clerks that recognized Jerry's photo, they began to focus their attention on gas stations and restaurants like 120 to 140 miles apart because they knew that the Honda motorcycle Jerry was driving would need fuel every 120 to 140 miles. That's good police work. Yeah. And like a lot of legwork. They're not just sending emails Mm, and screenshots right right now. They're taking a photo into the store to question people. I mean, nowadays people are looking at um, like cell phone records. I mean, they mm-hmm. didn't have any cell phone records. So this is this was kind of the similar looking and trying to trace where he was mm-hmm. when. Absolutely. And knowing that Jerry took a short ride down the California coast to see his daughters before this, you know, quest to find himself began, they stopped and interviewed workers at sporting goods stores and other establishments that they thought would sell ammunition along that same coastal drive. Um so they this is crazy. They hit the jackpot at Ken's Sporting Goods in Paso Robles, California. The clerk working that day, Jack Mackendonsky, I'm sure I butchered his name, happened to remember someone coming in with an Iowa driver's license for ammo. And Jack mentioned that, hey, I'm from Waterloo, oh Iowa. So the two men chatted for a while before Jerry purchased the ammo, signing for it and providing his social security number for the store's records. Dang. Yeah. So this was really all the evidence they needed to arrest Jerry Mark for the murder of his brother and his brother's wife and their children. And as the prosecution continued to build their case against Jerry Mark, they accumulated a lot of other circumstantial evidence. 
Investigators subpoenaed the phone records for Bell payphones along the same interstate. This allowed them to find where Jerry was when he called Mimi from payphones along his quest. And while he had a route planned out for his fictitious ride, you know, the locations that he told Mimi he was in, those did not match up with the phone records at all, which showed him making a straight trip to Iowa. Mm. Now, the trial against Jerry Mark started in June of 1976, not long after Jerry married Mimi in order to provide her and himself with spousal privilege wow. at trial. In Scott Coelty's book, Brother's Blood, he writes of the trial. Dutton opened with an extended statement summarizing his case for Jerry's guilt. He kept the jury riveted with a combination of facts and emotional tugs. Beginning with a summary of charges, he then explored the brothers' background and their evolving relationships. The jury was hearing everything for the first time, including the legal charges against Jerry, so they listened intently. Dutton detailed Jerry's trip to Iowa in May and June of the previous year to visit the family and his growing rage over his brother's takeover of the family business. Drawing on interviews that were taken in November and December with a variety of witnesses, including Mimi and Jerry, he was able to weave a narrative of events that led up to the murders. Jerry's motives, Dutton stated, were a combination of revenge, jealousy, rage, and greed. And though no one could establish that Jerry sought to control the Mark family fortune, Jerry certainly seemed all but indignant. Dutton showed that he had been living off his first wife, and then after their separation, he used Mimi's salary for living expenses along with money from his parents. His odd jobs brought in very little income. In fact, when Wayne Mark died a few years later, Jerry owed him 48000 of the $50,000 inheritance he was due, leaving him with the small inheritance of only $2,000. Dutton then attempted to establish that not only did Jerry have more than one motive, he also had the means, the Honda 450 and the stolen 38 revolver, which actually turned out to be an antique Spanish copy of a cold handgun. And so, of course, with this rare ammunition and this rare gun, plus the signature for the, you know, the bullets mm -hmm. and Paso Robles, it just sort of all added right, up. Right. Um, Dutton ended his opening statement with a detailed explanation of Jerry Mark's arrival at the home place, the murderer's actions as he crept into the house, and the brutal murders. Then Dutton brought up a strange point about the crime scene photos of Georgine's body. As you'll see from the photo, he began sometime before she died and after she was made to lie on the floor, she extended her first two fingers from her left hand. He was inferring that Georgine was signaling too because Jerry was Les's second brother. Okay. I mean, I'm just I telling mean, you what they said, Melanie. I, okay. So skeptical. Uh, that somebody in their dying uh, <laughs> breast has the wherewithal to think, mm. if I put the number two. I'm going to give her credit for it. Uh, oh, okay. Well, um, <laughs> I could have been thinking uh, two fingers, peace. Like, <laughs> peace, peace, peace. Oh, well, that's. Uh... All right. Well, in the end, they didn't really need that information one way or the other because the jury deliberated for only five hours, finding Jerry Mark guilty of four murders. So was the 18-month-old shot as well? Yeah. Dang. Who, that's It's horrible. Sick. Yeah. Ugh. And they probably would have slept through everything. Mm -hmm. You know, like. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk about the house for a little bit. Carrie, from what we can tell from property records, I think your family was the first to live in the home after the crimes occurred. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. My memory is that um, my dad and wife were the first to own the home following the crime. I think they purchased the property either in late, te late 
84 or maybe early 1985. I actually moved in when my mom left the state for job opportunity in 1985. So it was clearly by then. Um, and I actually checked the, the county assessor's page also and didn't see another owner prior to my family's purchase. But based on the, the I don't know, just the way the house was, it was clear that nobody had been in that house since the, the murders. Yeah. You know, Carrie, one of the things that we are always curious about is why someone purchases a home where a horrific crime has occurred. Why do you think this home was appealing to your family? Well, for my family, I mean, look, at this point, we had a blended family with six kids combined, and my dad and his wife wanted to raise horses also. So they needed that large house with a bit of land. And I just think this was, you know, it, it had what they needed. I know you've talked about how pragmatic Midwesterners are, and there is definitely some truth to that. I think for my dad and wife, it was just a practical decision. And it came at a price that, you know, my dad was a nurse and his wife was a lab tech. So it was just something mm -hmm. they could afford. And obviously, you know, since they were from the area, they knew what they were walking into. I mean, it wasn't a secret um, that, that needed to be disclosed, I'm assuming. Right, right. Um, and how did you feel about living in the house? Um, or did you really even know it at a young age, the extent of what had happened there? Well, when the murders actually occurred, I was only five. But uh, when I lived there, I was in high school. So living in the home, to me, it was it was actually kind of a, a quote unquote party trick, <laughs> you know, just a fun story to tell people, you know, especially if they were visiting, you know, they were in the house. And oh, by the way, did you know, um, I, I, I did think about the marked children, though, and I recall mapping out the rooms where they would have been in. I did. My bedroom was not one of the rooms where a murder occurred. So that, you know, that wasn't something on my mind. I did also visit the actual graves of the family uh, were just up the road. And so when I rode the horses, I would, I would visit the grave graves once in a while, but generally I really didn't think about it a lot and it, and it didn't really phase me much. Now, I also wondered, uh, you know, did you ever have people come look at the house or family members of the Mark family come over to the house? Nowadays in a lot of these stories in more urban communities, there's this whole morbid tourism sector where people mm -hmm. like to go look at the, mm -hmm. the houses. Yeah, no, I don't recall any of that as far as, you know, it being this feature or, or you know, something that someone wanted to see because of the, the, the history. So Carrie, you mentioned that you moved out of the house on Union Road when you graduated high school in 88. How long did your family continue to yeah. live there? Yeah, that's right. I, I moved out in 88, but my dad and his wife continued to live there for several more years before they eventually moved to Oklahoma. Um, I, I would say, I'm not quite sure when that was, but uh, my brother, you know, John, your husband, uh, went, you know, went to school in Oklahoma. So it was by the time my brothers were in high school. Um, and I've driven by the home a couple of times when we visit the area. I still, my in-laws are still there. Um, I guess I'll let you guys tell the story about what, what the house looks like now and what's happened to it since. Yeah, no, well, I'm very glad your family did move to Oklahoma or I would never met your brother. So <laughs> that worked out well for me. Um, me too. You know, it's, it's definitely harder to research a house that isn't like quote unquote famous, right? Some of these bigger, you know, homes have had 
a lot of news stories covering them um, or some of the crimes have been a little more recent. So this one was a little bit hard to research. Carrie was great and and pulled up some tax records for me. But from what I can tell, the property changed hands several times after you all lived there before eventually becoming the Melody Acres Bed and Breakfast. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I like I can't find any old Instagram or Facebook pages for them. So it was probably like before that got really popular. Mm. Um, And then it reverted Mm -hmm. back to a residential home. The property was last sold in 2021 for $700,000. And the house itself now sits on 2.97 acres with the majority of the Mark farmland surrounding the home sold off separately over time. Because what did we say? It was like originally like 1,200 acres. Mm -hmm. So it's down to just under three acres now. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons the Mark family could have decided to sell off the farmland first. I mean, you know, with less gone, who's going to manage the farm? Wayne definitely wasn't, you know, in a health condition that he could do that. And even if they leased it out to other farmers, you know, their other sons weren't really in a position to manage a farm in Iowa either. Plus, the Mark family had extensive legal fees to cover. Dorothy never believed that Jerry murdered Les, Georgine, and their kids, and they fought for his original four life sentences to be overturned for years. Yeah. I, I do remember hearing about appeals, you know, like I said, I was in high school um, and, and stayed in the area for a while, even after my family moved to Oklahoma. And I, I do remember hearing about appeals. Yeah. So in that first appeal, Jerry claimed that had additional information been allowed at trial, he would not have been convicted. In particular, he was outraged that his father, Wayne, would not let his real estate dealings be brought into the trial. He thought that allowing that information into evidence would have provided an alternative motive for the killings. And in fact, you guys, it really might have, because we later learned that the Mark family real estate dealings were indeed shady. One of the attorneys that Wayne Mark worked with was disbarred for unethical practices. So I sent the decision to disbar the attorney written by the Supreme Court of Iowa to my husband. I was like, can you give me sort of a layman's explanation? And, you know, he said that the dealings were shady as hell, was his quote. A direct direct quote. I can see that. Direct quote. And, you know, really (laughs) like just an obvious ethical breach by attorneys. He said, you know, so here was their situation. They had two lawyers in a law firm together. And on one side, their client is this elderly woman who can't manage her own property and has a conservatorship to manage it for her. One of those two lawyers is a co-conservator with the woman's niece, okay? And on the other side, both of the lawyers own a piece of the real estate investment business that buys and sells farms run by their other client, Wayne Mark. So (laughs) Wayne Mark like repeatedly tries to buy this farm only to be told no by this niece Mm co-conservator. They did not want him to buy the land. So the lawyers make another offer on behalf of the company that they own part of, but they hide the name of the actual purchaser by using a nominee, which my husband says is a fancy word for using someone else's name to lie about the identity of the actual purchaser. So obviously they have a conflict here. Like they have every incentive to get their elderly lady client to take a lowball offer because then they're going to profit from their client accepting too little money. And so Baker, the lawyer who was disbarred was to receive a third of any profits from the property. So it's basically like two of the two to three things that will actually get an attorney disbarred, lying to your client and stealing by fraud. Okay. 
And it looks like it was really blatant fraud. The 95-year-old owner died before the deal could close, but the attorneys advised the niece to go through with the sale anyway. And she did, selling it for $250,000 or $900 an acre. The same year, the company the lawyers invested in with Wayne Mark sold a similar farm for $2,100 an acre. So the price that they gave her like just really undervalued the property. And the next year, they reached a deal to sell that little lady's farm for $2,600 an acre, almost three times what they paid for it. So when that deal was going through title, the scheme was discovered because the buyers noticed that the farm had been bought well under market price and, um, you know, and all this nominee business. So Jerry Mark, to his credit, might have been right that there was, you know, somebody that could have been really angry Mm -hmm. about a shady real estate dealing that had motive. Mm Mm-hmm. And who may or may not have known that the family had moved, right. you know? So it seems as though while Dorothy believed he didn't do it, Wayne did believe. I think Wayne thought that he did it. Okay. It, but yeah. Wayne died in the summer of 76 or... 70, 76, 77, very it, shortly after the murders. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm not sure how involved he was well, at this point in time. It, it, you mentioned that he did not want the real estate dealings brought up in the trials. That's oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Right, so he right. was, I think he, I think the trial started in 76 and Wayne died in 77. Okay. Yeah. So additionally, Jerry claimed that much of the circle circumstantial evidence that he was convicted on was no longer valid. And indeed that's probably true too. The test that they used to match his blood type to the saliva on the cigarette, butt is no longer considered trustworthy. And when they had DNA on the cigarette, butt retested, it didn't match Jerry Mark. Along similar lines, the testing they did to compare the bullets that Jerry purchased to the ones used to kill the Mark family, some sort of lead analysis, is no longer considered a reliable test either. And if that wasn't enough, Jerry claims that there is an eyewitness that puts him far away from the house on Union Road uh, when the crimes occurred. So in 2006, a judge overturned the sentencing saying that Jerry was denied a fair trial because prosecutors and his trial judge withheld that key evidence that could have proven his innocence. However, a higher court later overturned that ruling, and to date, Jerry Mark is still in prison. So what do y'all think, given all of that? Um, do you think he did it? Like, Carrie, what's, do you know what the overall consensus is in Cedar Falls? Like, do people believe he did it, or do people believe that he's innocent? You know, I, I don't. I mean, by this time, you know, I, I wasn't living in Cedar Falls anymore, but I, I do know that prior to a lot of these appeals, you know, the consensus was he did it. So Carrie, we know you lived there though, as a child, didn't really have much of a choice as to where you live, but knowing what you know now, would you live in this property? Um, the property. Yeah. I mean, it, it, especially the way it is now, it's been totally redone. I think my, my dad paid maybe a little over a hundred grand for it. And you said recently it was sold for 700,000. So I, I know that, you know, it's been totally renovated since I've lived there. Um, the way it was when I did live there, though, I, I don't I don't think I would buy it. I mean, I but mostly because the house itself just wasn't in in a condition I would I would want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the pragmatic decision, right? Like you're like the house isn't what I want, but the yeah. crime is not what not <laughs> what would stop you from buying it. It's the house right. itself. Yeah, I right. get that. I don't know, it's a tough one. It's always hard when there are kids involved, I think. Especially, I mean, just thinking of the the little baby. I mean, yes, obviously, when there's kids involved, but the little baby, 18-month-old and shot, and that's, I'm going to say no on living there or 
buying it, but I would sell it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Mel? You know, part of my feelings might be clouded by the fact that John and Carrie grew up there and had a good experience <laughs> and um, obviously weren't affected and there wasn't ghosts running around the house uh, as far as they can tell. So <laughs> they're fully functioning uh, adults. They haven't been yeah. traumatized. Yeah. So I, from that perspective, I'm more inclined. I do think there are, sounds like there was a good gap of ta- uh, time that the house was empty between then. Um, yeah. I don't know about being the first. I feel like I'm, I would be more inclined to, to buy it if there was like, oh, there was this, you know, second or third and it's kind of changed hands over the years and the, the karma had been wiped clean. So I'm probably going to say no, but I, I, uh, I could see why it was a good decision for uh, the family mm-hmm. at that, at the mm-hmm. time. Um, and obviously, you know, we all would like to make some money. So I, I don't think any of us would say no to making some money in this scenario. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I mean, I think the fact that John lived there would definitely, you know, factor into the decision of, well, I would live there too. Um, plus, I think there's something lovely about like living in a farmhouse. I could totally do that, you know, if this whole Dallas thing doesn't work out. I, I mean, I love the idea of a farmhouse. <laughs> That's close to town. Like, you know. <laughs> well, this one was only five yeah, miles exactly. outside. Yeah. That, that, that to me is the perfect because. Mm-hmm. But what's you know, the town? That makes a difference. Hey, she says it's a Iowa nice town. town. It's a college town. And so I give, like, if I was yep. to ever live in a smaller town, a college town, I would give more credence to because you usually have coffee shops bars. and sporting. Hey, I was. I, I knew was, you were going there. <laughs> I was thinking bars. I wasn't saying it. Um, it entertainment, theater, et cetera. I do feel that a smaller town with a college has a little bit more mm-hmm. energy going on um, otherwise. Yeah, mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. Thank you so much, Carrie, for sharing your story with us. And this was this was good. I'm so proud of you, Heather, for putting this together and even well, we thinking about fun. it for a year. We were going to record over Thanksgiving, and I just couldn't quite get my act together. We had a lot of people <laughs> here, though. So, you know, I think that's really, that's it for the story that started I, our little podcast. I wanted to do one plug. Oh, um, yeah. It, for those of you who, who enjoyed having someone who's lived in the house um, to come talk to us, and thank you so much, Carrie. We also did one other story where we had someone who had lived in the house after a murder. Um, and, and that was the case of, that was Polly class. Yeah. Polly and I class. can't remember what episode that is, but no, Adrian came and talked to us. Yeah. yeah that was so sweet of her. Yeah. And, and the, the show notes back to that one. So definitely want to, um, give a shout out if you kind of liked this format and kind of the understanding of what's it like to live in a house afterwards, um, go look for our Polly class, which is also a, an infamous episode as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Bye. We'll see y'all next week. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hey y'all, thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's featured Crime Estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a Crime Estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.